Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew 12. We're going to flip to Mark 10 and then Luke 14, but I'm only going to read Mark, excuse me, Matthew 12. We are talking today about church and family. Lord willing, we're going to talk about church and state and that relationship, and then the final sermon will be about cultural renewal, but that'll be in a few weeks from now when we get into October. But let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 12, verse 50. These are the words of God. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Our Father and blessed Lord, who caused all the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Church and family. In my original sketch for this series, I did not plan to do a message like this, but after more reading and studying, I realized that it is definitely worth the time to look at the relationship between the church institutionally, the church as an institution, in relationship to the family itself an institution that God has put in place as well. Originally, I thought that I might discuss family worship and how that dovetails with assembled worship, what we do in our homes and then what we do together on Sunday and the Lord's Day. But after some consideration, I felt that it would be better suited for a different forthcoming series on the family. And so, Lord willing, that'll be something we do in the near future. Uh, Just a series on the family, on marriage, children, all of those things. Um, That'll come, Lord willing. Now, I do think that it matters that the family worships at home in some form or fashion. Uh, You're not going to find a bunch of verses that say, this is exactly how you must do it. Um, But there is, when you think about Christian education in the home, uh, you you think about inculcating these ideas into our children, opening up the Bible together, praying together, catechizing, um, even singing. All of those things are strongly recommended from Scripture. When you think about how we're raising our children, we should be, to some extent, doing that sort of thing. And indeed, though, it is biblically, biblically commanded. Parents are responsible to do that with your children, to grow them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And we can't forget that our families are raising worshipers for the Lord. When you think about the few years you have to steward with your children, you are raising them up in to be worshipers. You want your children to worship God. You want them to love God's word, to sing to God, to pray. That's the goal. Um, we're not raising children, really. We're, we're raising worshipers, um, or at the very least, we're raising future adults. So we need to think about it in those terms. Um, and, our, and our goal, of course, isn't to raise children who are simply moralistic automatons. We don't want our children to just kind of be able to rehearse, yeah, this is right, that is wrong, and do so with sort of a look on their face that doesn't really seem to matter. We don't want them to to mindlessly and heartlessly walk through life, right? We don't want that for our kids. We want our children to love the standard of God's law. We want them to love the Bible, to love Jesus Christ, to walk with Him. 
and know that Jesus isn't some sort of additional thing to your life. He is your life. He's not just something you add on to your life. He, in fact, gives you life. So we, we, we need to worship well at home. That said, the family's central role is the dominion covenant we find in Genesis 1 and 2 and the perpetuation of culture. If you don't have people, you don't have culture. People are the foundation of that. And so marriage gives us people. Uh, normatively, we end up with children and then we create more people and we raise eternal souls accordingly. So we need people to feed culture, essentially. The help meet provision of Eve given to Adam was put in place to populate the human race and expand the dominion covenant. That's what her role was to do, to come and be a helpmeet for Adam. But that said, the family feeds the other institutions by providing bodies and also funds. So if you think about it, the war in the West on the family is a war to gut the entirety of culture here in the U.S. And that is perpetuated by the globo homo stuff. Um, and all of that, Andrew Isker calls it trash world. I love it. It's a great... Uh, a great way to, to talk about it. But the family feeds the institutions. And so if you continue to cut off the family through abortion, um, through feeding them hormone therapies and all of this, you've destroyed the institutions. You don't have a future. You've cut it off. Now, normatively, as I said, we get married. We have children. We educate them with the Christian worldview. We might teach them a trade or two. They might need to learn how to change brakes on a car or dig trenches for future projects. Um, they need to know certain things, and maybe they need to go to college, or maybe not. Uh, <laughs> the way things are, I'm not sure that's anything that, you know, there may be a few tasks that you might be called to, and maybe college is important. Um, but I recommend you don't go to the Women and Gender Studies Center at GMU and talk to the rep that I did a couple weeks ago about that worthless degree. Now, from there, though, our children are to grow and then do the same thing. They are, they are to leave and cleave, and then they start a family, and then they continue down the same exact discipleship program, and we baptize our babies, we raise them in the Lord, and God says he's faithful to a thousand generations. So that's the normative pattern. That's what we're after. The family, while not the most basic or fundamental institution, I will argue that self-government is the most basic or fundamental institution. What do you have if you have a man who is not self-governed? You have a bad marriage, and that can destroy a family. And so really, self-government is the most basic and the most fundamental um, institution because we are individuals first, and then we go into marriage. But it's not the most fundamental institution in that sense. The family is, however, the central institution for things like raising children, building wealth, creating businesses, taking care of health needs, and of course incubating children with the knowledge of the Lord. And no doubt there are some overlaps. The church institutionally can and should be involved in education to some degree or another. We want our families to be equipped so that our children can have the biblical worldview. Um, and of course we must to some degree help our children grow in their obedience to Christ. Uh, we don't want what Hillary Clinton states, these are our kids, like the, they belong to the state. And really, no church should say that in the sense that these are our kids. Only in a spiritual sense you could say that. If they're covenant, baptized covenant members, then they are our kids in terms of the mother church. 
They belong to Christ as, as the bride of Christ. But the family is where those things take root. That's the main focus of the family. Children, you know, building a home, helping educate them, train them up so that they're ready to go, teach them a trade, and let them work. And work is a gift. So work hard and make money, fund the kingdom. That's the process. That's how we do this. Now, when a person is born, the family is the first and immediate institution, obviously, correct? When somebody is born, immediately you're, you're in the arms of your mother, typically, uh, and your father, typically, would be there. Um, but furthermore, the, we know also that, that since that's the immediate institution, there is a level of importance there. But the state has no business in any of that stuff. When the state starts getting involved in medicine, like we saw recently, and we've seen it for a while anyway with Big Harma, <laughs> they are constantly involved in what's called health care, which is nothing but disease management and painful death care. And they get involved in these things. They get involved in education, and they, they get tied up and tangled up in all of these things, and then it chokes out the family, and it chokes out the church. And we don't want that. We don't want them in, in any of that stuff. Now, I'm going to argue today, and I have already, that the family is not the most fundamental institution. And what I mean is the family isn't the central institution of, for example, the Great Commission. It's part of it, but it's not the ultimate. Uh, the church is. The family participates in it and fuels it. Again, provides bodies, provides money. That's, that's what the family does. But it's not the most fundamental unit. And what I mean is we as Christians... And as the church are called to disciple the nations so that they become obedient to Christ. We want them obedient to Christ, not obedient to the family. So that's kind of the logic behind what I'm saying here. Moreover, the reason this is the case is because of the judicial sanctions that are tied to the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper belong to the church, not the family. It belongs to the church, not the family. That was... North's argument against his father-in-law, R.J. Rushtuni. You, that's why, you know, we'll just take communion at home and we'll use Doritos and, and apple juice or Mountain Dew if you really want to get risky. And that would be uh, not partaking of the sacraments in a lawful manner. In fact, it would really be borderline blasphemous behavior uh, because not only did the Lord give us bread and wine, he gave it to the church and not to you as a family. He gave it to the family of God, not your nuclear family. So that's, but there are sanctions tied to that, as we'll talk about in a little bit. Now this, again, this doesn't mean that the family is unimportant or that it has no cultural purpose. Obviously it does. Rather, it means that the family plays a certain role in a specific sphere, but it is ultimately not the foremost institution. The family is the immediate institution, but it's not the ultimate institution. It's the most immediate institution, but it's not the most ultimate institution. It's the church that lasts into eternity. There's no marriage in heaven. There's no marriage in the new heavens and new earth. There's no more physical birth. Um, that's done with. So that's why it's the most immediate institution, because in the here and now, we need healthy families to help feed the other institutions. But it's not ultimate. Because ultimately, I mean, who among us has family members who are probably 
not in heaven <laughs> because they did not walk with the Lord. So that's what I mean by most immediate and then most ultimate. So family units are, of course, constantly growing and changing and dying. Um, the church, however, remains eternally. The family covenant is only established once. When you make a covenant with a, your spouse, that covenant is only established one time through physical consummation. That's it. There's no covenant renewal in the family. It, it's established one time. But the church, we renew covenant every Lord's Day, the Lord's Supper. So judicially speaking, the one is greater than the other. Uh, that's, that's why we can say what we can say about the relationship. Plus, the family supports both the state and the church. Uh, too much to the state, I would add, but different message. Judicially speaking, in terms of lawfulness, it is subordinate to the state and the church in that regard, the family. But the family is the primary institution for welfare, and yet it's not the primary institution for law and society. Um, we are not the mafia. <laughs> the, we're not warlords either. T sort of like tribal fam familiarism. That's kind of like what some people err in, and that's not how we as Christians function. The family wields the rod of discipline or training, so that's the primary role in the home is to disciple and train your kids. Um, that's, that's what you have to do as parents. The state, we know, wields the sword of God's wrath you know, via the death penalty and other sanctions. And the church wields the keys of the kingdom. We have the sword of the word of God, but we also have the keys to the kingdom. So we are allowed to bind and loose as a church community. Whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven, Jesus tells us. So we have the opportunity to go forth with the gospel and bind certain things and warn people of the judgment that they will face if they do not turn to Christ. Families owe the tithe to the church. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And yet the state is not allowed and shouldn't meddle in any of those transactions. So we're going to talk church and state soon. Because the church has a, what we can call a sacramental monopoly, meaning baptism in the Lord's Supper, that's not a family right, again, that's a church right, the church has a particular authority that the family does not. Because of that, because of the fact that the, the Lord's Supper belongs to the church, the church has an authority that the family just doesn't have. Um, and we want, what, what we want to know is this. What has God authorized the church to do which stands in contrast to the family and the state? What has God given to the church that he did not give to family units and he did not give to the state? What, these spheres. Well, for example, the church excommunicates someone. The family does not. Only the church has that authority to excommunicate someone. And sometimes people will just excommunicate themselves <laughs> and not follow biblical procedure. But the church has that power to excommunicate. And what we're talking about is sphere sovereignty. Sphere sovereignty. And it's important to make sure we have these categories set in place, lest we make the mistake that some have made, even within our own camp, of assuming that the family has a centrality that it simply does not have, covenantally speaking. So three passages, let's look at those, all from the Gospels, all from the mouth of our Lord. Matthew chapter 12, verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister 
and mother. Interesting statement. The first thing we want to know and consider is the context. Jesus was speaking to the crowds, and his mother, literal mother, biological mother, um, and his brothers were standing outside, and they were trying to speak with him. He was busy with the crowds. They wanted a word with him. Someone passed that information along to Jesus, maybe whispering in his ears, hey, your, your, your mother's outside, your brothers are outside, they want to talk to you, they, they want to have a word with you. And Jesus tells the messenger, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? He says that in verse 48. Interesting comment in front of everybody. Afterwards, he stretched out his hand toward the disciples, his disciples, and he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. Verse 49, Jesus refers to the church as a mother, which theologically is a precise statement. And he says that the disciples are his brothers. That's why we can say as Christians, Jesus is our older brother. So it would be easy to take offense here and charge Jesus with essentially out, outwardly denying his biological bonds. Ah, that, that's just my actual mother, and it's, you know, she's irrelevant. You know, that, people can read, that, read it that way, but that's not exactly what he's doing. Jesus doesn't eradicate family bonds. The Dominion Covenant requires family bonds. It requires godly marriages and families. We, we have to have them. It's important. But rather, he's demonstrating here the priority of the kingdom. So whoever does the will of the Father, that's family. Water is thicker than blood. The baptismal water is thicker than blood. And covenant is stronger than the natural. The covenant bond that we have in Christ is actually much stronger than the natural bonds we have in Christ. And some of you who have estranged family members and difficulties in your family, you understand why that is the case. But the covenant has a priority that the natural does not. Just like Paul doesn't eradicate the distinction between Jew and Greek, insisting, however, that the kingdom unites us in such a way as making those distinctions subordinate to the kingdom reality, so Jesus does the same thing. There is an order and there is a priority. The kingdom sets those terms in place. Go to Mark chapter 10. We're just going to go through the first Matthew, Mark, Luke. We'll go to Mark 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has, how, who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake except one who will receive 100 times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. The priority of the kingdom takes on a different character here. Coming off the heels of speaking with the rich young ruler, Jesus laments how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, It's hard to enter the kingdom, period. And uh, astonished, the disciples ask, well, then who can be saved? If it's hard to get into the kingdom, who can possibly be saved? Well, for people to enter on their own volition, it's impossible. 
for you to just muster up in your sinful state the desire to be saved, it's impossible. But with God's power of rebirth, he says in verse 27, all things are possible. He's talking about getting into the kingdom. With God, all things are possible. I mean, he can make the stones cry out, right? He, he can create out of nothing. He can turn the water into wine. He can turn, multiply the fish and the loaves. I mean, that's easy. What about getting someone into the new birth so that they can enter the kingdom? Well, that's impossible with us. But it is possible with God. Rather forthcomingly, Peter says that they have, unlike the rich young ruler, left everything and followed him. Verse 28, I love Peter. Just remember, we, uh, we left everything to follow you. Sort of a note of boast in our own selves. Peter's good at that. And good, Jesus says that those who leave it all will receive 100-fold of the coming kingdom. So the threshold for entering the kingdom through the power of the gospel, through the work of the Spirit, is loving the kingdom more than anything else in the world, including special things like families and farms. If your attitude is to just leave it all for the sake of Christ, you're not far from the kingdom. That's where the rich young ruler had a problem. He said he kept the commands. He had a lot of stuff. Jesus says, are you willing to forsake it all? And he left, not really willing to forsake it all. That's the priority of the kingdom. If you're not willing to leave everything you own behind, clothing, material possessions, your home, your crops, everything, leave it all. If you're not willing, then you can't have Christ. But if you are willing, you can get a hundredfold. God's blessings of the covenant come back to you a hundredfold, he says. Now, Jesus isn't suggesting that one actually abandon the family and those natural affections. Far be it. Instead, love for the kingdom takes priority over and indeed gives rise to everything else. Love for the kingdom takes priority over everything else, and love for the kingdom is actually what gives rise to everything else. Only when a love for God takes root in the heart can all these other things be rightly ordered. I, I, do, I say this to every couple I've ever, ever married in premarital counseling. You have to love Christ more than your spouse. You just do. You have to. If you don't love Christ more than your spouse, not only do you have an idolatry problem, but you're going to fail. You're going to fail because your life isn't ordered the way it's supposed to be. A rightly ordered heart is what gives rise to a rightly ordered life, including the endurance which is necessary, Jesus says, to even survive persecutions. The American church right now is weak. Side note. Not in my notes. We're weak. And not only are we weak, we are so bad that the, the persecutions that will indeed come, we, we'll just roll over. We don't care. People were burned at the stake in the first few centuries of the church because they would not deny Christ. And I tell you, if, if, the, if the government puts the screws to the church and says, you will stop preaching, you will stop meeting, you will stop preaching Christ and his kingdom, I think most of them would do it. They would do it. That's how you know where your love really is, is when things get hard. Now flip to Luke 14. That's a different sermon for another day. <laughs> Luke 14, verse 26. Luke 14, verse 26. If 
anyone comes to me, this is Jesus speaking, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hmm. If you come after Christ, but you don't have a disposition towards him that looks like hatred towards everything in this world, including yourself, you can't, you can't be a disciple of Christ. The cost of discipleship is steep. It requires everything. It requires everything. How does one convey the severity of this cost? Think about it. How does Jesus convey the severity of this cost? Well, hyperbole helps. <laughs> Jesus here exaggerates in order to demonstrate the seriousness of what's at stake. There, again, is a priority of loves. Love for the kingdom, loving the kingdom more than you love your spouse, more than you love your family, more than you even love yourself, is what's required. Love Christ more than father or mother. Love Christ more than brother or sister. And you might say, especially with father or mother, well, doesn't that violate the fifth commandment? To honor your father and mother, Jesus is saying, you have to, if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate them. Well, doesn't, isn't Jesus breaking the law here? Well, no, he's not. What he's saying is the best way to honor your parents is to live faithfully to the king. In fact, you can't really love them. You can't really love your, your wife, your husband, your children. You can't really love any of them until you have first learned what true sacrificial love really is. And the only way you're going to do that is if you know Christ and love him. See, our natural affections for family are strong, and they should be. We, especially fathers, we want to protect our wife and our kids, right? We want to protect them. Someone hurts any of them, I will tear heads apart, right? That's just, that's a, that's a godly feeling of righteous anger because God has put that there. And, but that, that's proof that the relationship is strong. Um, the, the, the loss of a, of a loved one, but especially the loss of a child, can be a very, very devastating feeling because those are a natural affection that God has built. And even unbelievers experience that. But he's built it in there, and it's a very strong, and God has given us that great gift, and it is a gift. However, affection for Christ in taking up our cross, that's the context here in Luke, and taking up our cross must be the anchor that holds together all other loves, all other affections. That's what he's arguing here. Christ is the anchor that holds everything else in place. Nothing in creation should be at the center of your heart save for Christ Jesus. So how shall we then live? What we learn from the aforementioned passages, and there are others to consider, I just picked three, is that there is a certain priority that God has put in place in order to help us make sense of everything else. That's what Jesus is getting at here. You need to be able to make sense of everything else, and if you don't know Christ, you can't make sense of it. Love of self, for example, can deter one from following Christ. If all you care about is whatever suits your needs and your wants, you'll allow sin to be at the center of your life, and that will invariably cause problems in your family, and then it can spill over and cause problems in your church. It, just, it causes problems when we live selfishly. But what Jesus makes clear here is the fact that the kingdom of God is, in, is our top priority. 
The kingdom is our top priority. And this also means that the church, as a spiritual body of Christ, takes priority. God has granted the church a judicial superiority through the sacraments, which prepares people for eternal life here and now and in the future. Now, I want to make a distinction here between the church and what's called the parish. The parish is simply a reference to the geographical location of a place. Um, so if you live in a certain city or a certain township, wherever, think of it in Christian terms like a parish. The church is to be the center of the parish. There was a time in America when the church was, in fact, the center of every town. It was the highest. That's why they built the steeples the way they did. It was the highest uh, building in a small town. And to God be the glory. Maybe someday we'll have a 100-foot steeple. I don't know. But the church was at the center of the parish, meaning the people of God, and it could be your church or another church, whatever, they're the center of a location. And I mean center not only physically, buildings who were downtown, but also spiritually. Christians were at the center. Life inside of a church revolves around Lord's Day worship. It revolves around participation in the sacraments. It revolves around the preaching of God's word, church discipline, and so forth. Those are things that belong in the sphere of the church. And these are the elements of life in God's church that makes a church a church, right? Instead of being just some, you know, social gathering. But the parish, the location, the, the world outside of that in one sense, revolves around things like business and agriculture and shopping and education, playing golf, spending the evening by the fire in the fall, not Virginia summers. Those are things that revolve around life in the parish. Before the advent of the automobile, most people worked together. They went to church together. That was just normative. You oftentimes worked together and you went to church together. Every, just think Little House on the Prairie type, right? <laughs> That's how culturally where things were in our nation. Everything about their lives revolved around the small community church and the farming to be done around of it. Everything revolved around that. That's just, that's what it was. You didn't necessarily drive an hour to your job. You couldn't drive and it wouldn't make no sense to do that. You, you were just productive where you were at. Maybe you hopped on a train and went and worked a month out west somewhere. But generally speaking, that's just kind of how life was. But of course, a lot has changed in our country. All of you come here on the Lord's Day, and yet I I'm curious, how many churches did you pass on the way here? A lot, probably. I mean, do the math maybe next time you come this way and just think. I mean, there, there are churches everywhere, really, even including the heretical ones. <laughs> there are churches. Um, churches are ubiquitous, and unless they're heretical, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should treat them as such. If they, if they affirm Jesus Christ, God, man, only Savior, the Bible is the word of God, they affirm the triune nature of God, you know, they affirm these apostles' creed-type confessions and creeds, then, yeah, they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, if they don't, if they don't believe in the Trinity, that, I mean, you get a Mormon who will walk up to your door and say, hi, we're Christians, and, and I always say, no, you're not. And then that starts things off on the right foot, you know. 
And, but that's kind of like, no, you deny the Trinitarian nature of God. That is, by definition, heretical teaching. Now I'm calling you to repentance, and so goes the conversation. But those are our brothers and sisters, and they're everywhere. There are a lot of Christians in our nation, um, a lot of them misguided, some of them misguided, some of them, you know, just like us, because we're never misguided. <laughs> but some of you have friends in other churches, right? That's normal. That's pretty normal. Um, but community itself can't be centered on certain things. You can't have a church community centered just on like anti-vax medical freedom programs <laughs> as, as much as we abhor what we see in, in our culture. But, and it can't be solely about a particular method of, of education. Like it has to be Christian, but there are various ways to go about certain things that are tertiary topics and and that's okay. Like you don't have that doesn't have to be a deal breaker, um, but we should be centered around certain key convictions. Of course, communities are built around doctrinal convictions. Uh, it could be beliefs regarding worship and a strong desire to pursue the calling of the Great Commission. Um, if you hold certain convictions, um, you you're welcome at Crossing Crown. There are certain things that you may feel uncomfortable about, but Christian communities like ours, are built on a basic supposition. We want to be together. If you don't want to spend time with people, you just don't do it, right? <laughs> and that's where we're at as a church culture. People are just like, yeah, I'm done with them. I'm going to go somewhere else. And you, every year or two, you're just hopping around and, and there's no like roots. There's no stability. Um, suddenly, doctrinal convictions are really not that important. Um, it, it happens um, all the time. Uh, but we want to be together. We want to love one another. We want to serve one another. Um, we want to pursue the mission with like-mindedness and, and so forth. And there are lots of churches, and all churches are unique in their own way. They all have their own unique culture, and, and, and that's, just, that's just how it is. But the only way to really build a community is, to, is with the glue of the Holy Spirit. We're already unified in Christ, so we need to steward that unity together. And you have to choose to do that. It doesn't just magically happen. You have to put yourself in there. Like You have to, to show up. You have to be present. You have to want to be there. Um, and I think what we've created in our culture today is to be in this ability to be in community all by our lonesome selves. Some prefer megachurches. They have a really hip, cool coffee bar and crazy lights and all this cool stuff and the, the reason that has become popular is because we can be individuals in community so you can slip in and slip out easily you just you kind of show up you're there yay cool and then leave and then it like there's no mission there's no priority of the kingdom it's just kind of a cool experience you take your family to but that's not really community it's not true community it's a false version of it but my point here is that we want, we want common membership convictions based on Scripture. What am I obligated to do by the Bible for my neighbor, for those in my church? How am I supposed to treat my pastor? How am I supposed to treat the person that's across from me that I really don't know that well? What is God's demand for me as somebody in the church? And it doesn't matter what church you're at. God demands certain things from you. And that's going to be something we have to sort out. And it's all based on Scripture. And, of course, geographical locations and considerations play a role, too. 
But let's consider some basic facts here. The truth is, we gather on Sundays together for worship, and we gather in various capacities during the week. It could be play dates, park dates, you name it, men's fellowship, ladies' fellowship. We rotate that here. Um, you know, work days, picnic at the park, whatever. There's, there's things that we just sort of do. But let me, let me say it to you. Well, furthermore, on, to, on that topic, we have certain distinctives that would, in fact, set us apart from most churches. And let me say it this way. If you worship public schools as a dispensational Zionist and you're all about getting your 10th COVID booster while voting Democrat, I think what we think and believe and preach around here probably won't be your cup of tea. Um, we'll be patient with you, but I'll just, just be honest. Like Culturally, we're not into those things. <laughs> and we're not going to make we're going to make sure you know a few things too and we'll love you but but if 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 you just think the state should govern us harder then we're, we're going to have major differences but that's all churches have those cultural things and you know that's just a way of summarizing a few things that we would we would say around here however consider how much time is spent with your church in relationship to how much time is spent with your family. Compare that for a minute. How much time is spent with your church versus how much time is spent with your, with your family? It doesn't compare, right? You spend way more time with your family than with the church. At, think of it this way. At the very least, 40 to 50 hours a week is spent at a job. You know, that, at the very least, that is already cardened off. That's sectioned off. Sometimes it's a job among, among the pagans that we're trying to reach, right? Sometimes it's among friends and Christians. But the majority of our time is out there in the world, so to speak, where we change diapers, we put kids down for naps, we fix toilets, we mow the lawn, you know, we sweep the garage. Like That's where our time, most of our time is spent. And that's all part of the Dominion Covenant. So change diapers for the glory of God. And no family should ever really apologize for, take, to taking, for taking these things seriously and working in them diligently. You shouldn't apologize for that. Sometimes our circles of relationships are different, and that could be based on interests or hobbies, geography. But why would we think that that has to be a competition with the church? If, if you're working a job among the pagan tribes of America as my friend Matt says, if you're, if you're working out there, that's your mission, is it not? God has made you a full-time missionary there. That's not in conflict with the, the church in that sphere. It's not in conflict at all. Wherever God has placed you um, in your neighborhood, you can minister to others. And we all have different spheres of influence and participation and this is not really a problem at all. We're supposed to make disciples. So we make disciples. And that can be a family activity, but it can ultimately, it ultimately is a church activity. If you're discipling someone at work, you're doing it not as a father and a husband. You're doing it as a Christian. You're still a husband and a father. That doesn't go away, and that speaks to it. But that's the mission. That's the overall mission, and that's what Christians are supposed to do. 24 hours a day... 
Seven days a week, 365 days a year, you are a full-time family member and you are a full-time Christian as a member of the body of Christ. You are both. And where, though, is your ultimate hope? Is it not Christ? Is it not the body of Christ where all of this is headed? Gary North says it aptly. He says, history moves from the Adamic family of man in the Garden of Eden toward the adopted family of God in the city of God, the New Jerusalem. And this is why Jesus emphasizes the demand of the kingdom the way that he does. The family is a means to something outside of itself. Hear me. The family is a means to something outside of itself. The family is a means for raising and sharpening arrows, that's your children, for raising future family builders, future covenant members of the family of God. That is what your family is for. The family is subordinate to the church in that regard. Because some people will take your, well, I want to take my kids to church so they can have some semblance of a moral compass. That's a terrible discipleship plan. <laughs> and people do that. You know, they, they, they grew up in the church and they're like, I hate it. It's terrible. It's not for me. Well, now I'm 40 and I have kids. I kind of want to bring them in a little bit just so they like know a little bit about what it means to be a good person. That's a train wreck of a discipleship plan. But people do it a lot today. People do it a lot today. It's important for us to get the family out of the grip of the state. What's happening now is what happened in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Everything's just on repeat. However, we must not make the mistake that some have made in elevating the family above the church. The church is the central, eternal institution, for it has the keys to the kingdom. And the sanctions of the church are more severe than anything the state can dole out. Jesus says we are to fear not the one who can kill the body, but to fear the one who can send the body to hell. That's an order of sanctions. Who can kill the body? The state could, right? Somebody could. But who can actually destroy you forever in hell? Well, that's God. Priorities. The reason all of this is the way that it is is because the church, the church is God's sacramental institution, not the family. In terms of rituals, the preached word declares to man what God requires. The sacraments, as God's self-giving, apply sanctions to the people. The family doesn't have any of that authority. The church has the judicial authority to sanction its members, and it could be positively or negatively. What's the one negative sanction that only the church has? Excommunication. When someone refuses to repent of sin, false teaching, the church after following biblical procedures, and these are very important legal categories that are not supposed to be skipped, must, somebody must be bound, somebody must be loosed. That is, they have to make the judicial decision to refuse communion to the individual and to declare him outside the faith. That's a severe sanction. Now, he can repent and be restored, but only in that order. And the point I'm making is that the church is of the utmost importance. It matters that we gather together around the word of God. It matters that we gather around the table of the supper. It matters that we confess our sins, that we are restored and renewed in the covenant. It matters that we are equipped with a truly biblical worldview, not a pietist one, so that we can carry forth the gospel message. 
it matters that we guard the sacramental authority of the church and not commit a fallacy of reductionism which reduces the church down to merely a social club. If you think that that's all the church is, you're missing out on a lot. Every institution has the lawful authority to require an oath. I said it earlier, the family wields the rod of discipline, a metaphor for training and discipleship. The state wields the sword of God's wrath, a metaphor for death penalty and all of these other uh, restitution principles. The church wields the keys of the kingdom. So the church excommunicates as it guards the Lord's Supper. That, this is a supremely judicial decision. God cares about the covenant. And I'll tell you, Paul says this. Sometimes God is even willing to put people to death who do not treat it lawfully. Some people in Corinth were misusing the Lord's Supper. Paul says, that's why people are dying. That's why you're sick. There's a connection. If we don't treat it lawfully, there are ramifications that God gives to people. A final word, and then we'll wrap up. When we come to Christ, when we come to Christ, we do so because God has been gracious to us. Amen? His Spirit regenerates our hearts, plants the seeds of faith, and we begin from there to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. Notice that the Bible says fear and trembling. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling, not with ease and inattentiveness. Working that out means being serious about justice and righteousness in the world. It means being serious about the church members who sit around you, remaining committed to their holiness. You need to be committed to the holiness of the people around you. Not with gossip, not with flattery, just being honest, being sincere in your faith with one another. And it also means taking great care to order your family so that the family knows its role, sticks to its role, supports the church in its role. The gospel, friends, is at stake in the world. It really is. And we need self-governed individuals and gospel-soaked families building worshipfully obedient churches so that the world can be changed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we glorify your name. We glorify your Son. And we thank you that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. And I pray that as the word is preached, that you would sanctify and cleanse hearts, that your spirit would take what is proclaimed and grow us and mature us and unite us together in this bond of faith. As we come to your table, help us to be repentant, to be thoughtful about what it is we're doing. Help us to exercise faith and trust. And Lord, would you meet with us here? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.